Get a, get a drink of coffee, grab your Bibles, open up to Ephesians chapter 3. We read this passage last week, and we remain in it again this morning. Page 977 in those pew Bibles, if you're using one of those. I will read portions from this passage again as I, as I preach, so we won't pause to read the whole passage again this morning, but I wanted to come at it from a slightly different angle. Verse 1 of chapter 3 in Ephesians, this is the first time that Paul mentions his imprisonment. Now, we've mentioned that in our study, but if you were just a recipient of this letter and listening to him and digesting it up to this point, I think it would be striking to hear that this man who's been writing these words and in this way was actually writing from a prison cell. And we know the course of Paul's life, he would never be delivered from this imprisonment. He would be executed under Nero. Pretty striking. Uh, Now, really some famous influential works have been written from men in prison I think of Paul Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, first manuscript written while imprisoned. Martin Luther King Jr. and his letter from Birmingham Jail, one of the most powerful pieces of uh, literature and the words that he wrote. Nelson Mandela, a little more recently, his long walk to freedom. And we could probably list many others, but long before any of these, the Apostle Paul wrote Scripture from prison or from his imprisonment. In Rome, he wrote Galatians, Philippians, Colossians, and this letter that we're looking at here, Ephesians. Considering the tone and the content of what he's been writing about, isn't it striking? These long, run-on sentences we might accuse him of, but really it's almost like he can't pause to take a breath. Likely he wasn't with his own hand writing these words, but had a scribe just trying to keep up with him. And I can just see him in that cell or that room under house arrest, just pacing and out of him pouring this message. He wants to urge the church, his brothers and sisters in Christ, to be faithful to. He's reminding them who they are because of what God has done for them and therefore how they are to live. And on and on. And even chapter 3 seems like an excursus from where he was planning to go as we'll end chapter 3 with a prayer. It seems that he's beginning the chapter with this transition into this prayer for them and then he's going to give them some instructions and it's like he can't stop himself. He goes right back to what he's been preaching, the heart of the gospel message and it's just been flowing out of him. Last week, because we took a few weeks off, I recapped some of these powerful themes. Here, here a few of them again. Here's what Paul has been proclaiming in these first couple chapters of this letter. Every spiritual blessing is ours in Jesus. Grace abounds. Freedom is possible. We're rich and powerful in Christ. We have been seated in the heavenlies. We were dead, now we're alive. We were lost, now we're found. We were separated from God without hope, now we are brought near to live with hope, to live with peace. Our chains have been broken, our sins are forgiven. Paul calls us to draw near to God with freedom and boldness through the power of the Holy Spirit because Jesus has broken down all walls. Access to Him and the Father, uh, access to the Father through Him is possible. 
This is, so this is the man. That's just a snapshot of the first couple chapters. This is the man, the man that's been writing these words with this kind of enthusiasm is a prisoner. He would never receive earthly justice. He would receive execution. Imagine him in that, in that cell awaiting an audience with Nero so that he could determine his fate every time, if this was the setup, every time the, the key came into that lock of that door, his heart must have skipped a beat. Though we know by Paul's testimony and the way he wrote, even in Philippians, he said, to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. It, it, that's better for me to be at home in heaven. That's where my citizenship is. That's what I'm longing for. So I'm, I'm not fearful of my own death. But still, he's a man. And even if he knew that was likely to come under Nero, and there's already a reputation of Nero at this point, in history, every time that key turns in that lock, he must have, as a man, had a heart skip or his heart sped up as he senses, could this be my final hour on earth? I'm about to stand before, in that day, the most powerful man on earth to determine my fate, one who has actively persecuted the church and believers, and how ironic, just as Paul had. So he's yet a man, and yet what he's writing, the tone of his I think the tone as significantly as the content. How does a man in that position write in that way with hope of peace, riches of, of riches and power? Do you feel that same longing in your life to know this kind of purpose, this kind of meaning, this kind of passion? To live with this kind of hope and joy and freedom and confidence, regardless of circumstances, none of us would trade places with Paul. Even even if the circumstance you find yourself in today or in this season of life is the hardest one you've ever walked through. How can we live still with enthusiasm, with a message of hope and a message of joy and a message of freedom, Light shines most brightly in the darkness, doesn't it? Instead, the very opposite is probably more likely our reality. We find ourselves wavering, struggling when hard things happen, trying to piece life together at times. We feel lost, longing, languishing. We question whether our life has any meaning or purpose or influence at all. Let Paul's life and testimony stand as a beacon of hope to all of us, regardless of the circumstances we're in. It's what he would want for us. Imagine this. Imagine being unshakable when bad things happen. Unwavering. Unquestioning whether God has left you, abandoned you, or whether God is actually punishing you. No doubt that you are doing exactly what you are called to do in every moment of your life. Imagine that. Imagine that regardless of times of health and abundance or sickness and poverty, you know and live with joy, peace, hope, and love. Paul says this is not only possible, it is meant to be our reality as followers of Jesus. See, what he believed transformed how he behaved. It changed his life. 
And Jesus met him and changed his life. He has been proclaiming the gospel, the truth of God's plan of redemption for all peoples and things. That's the gospel, and he's been proclaiming it. He began in chapter 1. Here's what he believed, and then we'll see in chapter 3 how he lived because of it. And it too is our hope. Paul says in Ephesians 1 verse 7, in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, all of our sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he has now set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And we know that's just the middle portion of his introduction into the gospel. And he continues from there, just it flows from him. This is what he believed. It's what we're called. He's calling us to believe and to trust, which therefore gives us this kind of hope, this kind of confidence, this kind of purpose and meaning in life. And we see in verse 7 of chapter 3, so two chapters later, of this gospel, and he had been expounding on that, of this gospel, I, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. Now remember, pause there, the, the preaching of this gospel is what led him to prison. Here's how he's describing it. The ability to preach this gospel is a gift. It's a gift given to me by grace. I am the least of all the saints. This grace was given to me to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ to all peoples. He's in prison proclaiming this wasn't a duty or an obligation He wasn't questioning God's provision or protection in his life. Is God punishing me? He never doubted for a moment. He only receives it as a gift. What he believed changed how he lived. And what does it look like? What does it look like if we, too, are to join Paul? Clearly, circumstances will be different. The way we express this call and become proclaimers of this truth is unique. Most of our path will not end up in prison or in death for proclaiming Jesus. What will it look like? I think the key is what he says in verse 1, and he'll say it again in chapter 4, verse 1. Did you notice that? Maybe it's striking that he, he's a prisoner. It's striking that he's writing in this way from a jail cell. But what does he say? He doesn't say... I'm a prisoner of Rome. I'm a prisoner of Nero. No man or no empire is who's in prison. What does he claim? I am a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I am a prisoner of the Lord. What comes to mind are Martin Luther's famous words at the Diet of Worms. Here I stand. I can do no other, so help me God. That gets to the nature of what Paul is saying. I'm a prisoner of the Lord. Not the Lord is punishing me because of my unfaithfulness in the past or because of my sin and that's why I'm in this situation. No, I am a prisoner of the Lord and ironically, therefore, I am free. No walls, no locked doors, no chains, no Nero can take away my freedom 
I am that kind of prisoner of the Lord, prisoner of Christ Jesus. His calling compels me because I've chosen to follow him because he arrested my life. He set me free. You know, Paul often used the term doulos in Greek. It meant, it's translated in a lot of our English translations as slave. It tends to have a negative connotation. It would have been more accurate to say a bond servant. It brought up the concept that's in the Old Testament, Exodus 21 and Deuteronomy 15, where someone would give themselves into servitude to a master. Sometimes it was to pay off a debt, a debt owed that they couldn't pay, so they gave themselves and brought their family into service of, of a master, of a, of a household or a property. Sometimes it was simply for safety and protection. They couldn't provide for it on their own, so they, they went to a, a fellow Jew and gave themselves into servitude. Well, according to the law, every six years, that servant would be set free. The debt owed would be canceled. See, the sense of canceling debt and mercy has run through the gospel message from beginning to end. Now, if that servant said, this is a good place. Actually, if love compelled them, they've grown to now love their master. They were a good master. They cared for, they provided, they gave over and above what this servant was worth and they found safety and protection in this household. That servant, instead of going free and having their debt canceled, would have their debt canceled and then would remain in servitude forever. They would become a bond servant. And there was a powerful symbol. The Bible's full of symbolism to mark significant events. They were taken by that good master to the doorpost, the frame of the home, and they would lay their their head up against the frame. And the master would take an awl or a sharp object and hammer the earlobe of that servant right through, pierce it right through to the door. Now they would not remain there. They would put a stud or a ring into their ear to symbolize that mark. This is willing. They willingly gave themselves to this symbolism as a sign that I am your servant for life. I am bound to you by life. Here's my commitment to you because you have been good to me, because you have shown love to my family, and it's good for me to serve you. That's a bond servant. To say that's a slave has the wrong, it brings up the wrong imagery for us. Considering our history, uh, Paul was writing 2,000 years ago, writing of events that God has established in his law. This is what he meant when he said, I am a slave of Christ, Galatians 1.10. Am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? If I was trying to win the approval of men, I would no longer be a bondservant of Christ. I would no longer be his slave. That's a willing servitude. That's the image that Paul is portraying here, though he uses a different Greek word, when he says, I am a prisoner of Christ. I'm a prisoner of the Lord. I am bound to him. He has arrested my life and given me freedom. I will serve him all of my days. When Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, for all who believe, when you hear the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, you are marked with a seal. And we, said that, we saw that imagery of a seal was like a wax seal that a king would stamp. You are marked with a seal. It is the Holy Spirit. 
You're changed forever. You're marked. You're known. Now, I was going to give the offer, and we talked about you know, our campers this weekend, maybe, maybe some receiving the celebration of baptism in the river. Pretty cool. Actually, probably really cool. I was going to give the offer to you if you've, if you've never done this and you would like me to pierce your ear to the doorframe today as a sign of what God is doing in your life, I'm willing. If you would prefer to find some water and be dunked under as a symbol and celebration of what Christ has done, the old is gone, the new has come. We were, we were, we were sinful, we've been washed clean by the blood. That's the symbolism. That water dries off. A ring in your ear might be a reminder. So do we have a reminder for those that have celebrated baptism as a symbol? Do we have a reminder of the ongoing nature of our servitude, our, that we are bond servants, that we are members of the household of God? We are invited in as children, adopted in with, with no merit, but by grace alone is there an ongoing symbol that we are in the household of God as his servant and we actually have been invited to dine at his very table. The ongoing symbol is the communion meal that we celebrate every Sunday as both a reminder and a celebration that we are his. And truly, if you have never experienced water baptism and immersion, there is something powerful that you are missing if Christ has saved you. And I would say in accordance with the scripture, there is no reason to delay. And it's a pretty warm day out there. So this tank isn't filled up. By the way, some of you probably don't even know we have a tank up here. But there's a river and there's a lake nearby and there is no reason to delay. Yet the table is open for all of us as an ongoing reminder, symbol, and celebration of what Christ has done, that we are bond servants invited into the service of a good king, a good master, and we are in his household forever. That's the picture, that's the idea, and that's what Paul is proclaiming. I actually have my freedom because I am a slave to Christ. I am a prisoner of his, his love compels me, has arrested me. Are we singing that song later? Is that why it's in my mind? I don't know. We'll see. It'll be a mystery. Part of the mystery that Paul is proclaiming is this irony of becoming bond servants and finding our ultimate freedom. And don't be mistaken, Paul argues in Romans chapter 6 that we will be a slave to something. So if you assume you're free because you don't serve Jesus, you are wrong. You are a slave to something else. There's no choice in the matter. Your choice is which master you serve. Paul argues in Romans 6 verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone or anything as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? It should have, that's kind of an obvious statement. He's beginning there and going to take it spiritual. You are either going to be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or a slave of obedience, which leads to righteousness, a slave of Christ. Thanks be to God that we who were once slaves to sin have now become obedient to the heart of the standard of the teaching which we have passed on to you. And having been set free from sin, we have become slaves to righteousness. Doulos to Christ. We will be a slave to something. 
We will be mastered by it. And for anyone that has been trapped in any kind of sin or destructive behavior and unable to be freed and delivered, you know exactly what it is to be in bondage, to be enslaved to another master. And Jesus offers freedom, deliverance. Your chains are broken. How could we who have been delivered in this way and been freed in this way ever pick up those chains and put them back on our wrists and wear them again? And yet many live like this. We are no longer slaves to sin. Christ has purchased our freedom with his very life. Paul was clearly bound to the Lord Jesus But his whole life and his whole self was to service of this king so that even while he was in prison, he could proclaim, it is Christ's will that I am here. And if I am to be delivered, that too will be his will. But to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. I will not cease from proclaiming the hope of the gospel, this mystery now revealed Let me press on this point. I I, I think we need to hear it or be reminded of it. Never did Paul question if God was punishing him for his past sins. And if if you know anything of the story of Paul's life, and he recounts this in his second letter to the Corinthians, all the things that he had endured and faced. And that, that was a list that would say, why would you continue on the path that you were on? And that anyone could have said, Paul, clearly this is not God's will for you. Look at what's happening to you. How many times do you need to be shipwrecked and beaten and under persecution and need to flee for your life? I mean, the last time you're shipwrecked and you go to warm yourself by the fire and a viper jumps out and bites you on the arm. If that's not a sign that God is against you, what is? And Paul says, we don't believe in karma. I believe in my heavenly Father, and that is not the way a father treats his child. There is a relationship. I like the way John Stumbo says it, our president of the Alliance. There is a relationship between sin and suffering, but it is not a tight one. God is not punitive and vindictive. He is slow to anger and abounding in love. And too many people, some of, some of you, live with a punitive understanding of God or relationship, probably brought on by other relationships in your life. As an example, trying to be a little bit tongue-in-cheek, because it goes much deeper than this, but you, you don't get that job promotion. You get passed over, and your first response is, God, how have I sinned against you? that you did not give me this job. You just spent $1,000 on your car repair and you're driving away and you get rear-ended. God, what did I do to deserve this? No. No, Jesus took the penalty of all of our sin and paid for it on the cross. Where God is punitive against sin, it's been paid for by Jesus. You are under grace. That's not the response of a child to a good father. It doesn't mean we won't ask questions when things happen in our life to say, Lord, am I missing something? But we look to Paul who finds himself 
facing incredible suffering for years, ends up in prison, never questioning, God, are you punishing me for my sin? Because he was on mission for Jesus. Now, Jesus told Paul how much he would suffer for him, but not because you're going to face retribution for your past sins against the church. That's been paid for. But because as you go, and I empower you to proclaim this gospel, there is an enemy who will resist you. You will be persecuted. Our world is fallen and sinful and broken. So be ready for that. It's the same message when Jesus said, you'll, to, be, to be my disciples, you'll need to take up your cross daily and follow me. You'll need to give all of yourself to this. This isn't a partial thing. Jesus will not be added into our life. Jesus is not our Siri who is ready to give us helpful advice if we should ever ask, but otherwise is quietly listening in our pocket. Jesus demands all of our life. When one man came to him and said, what must I do to follow you? He he said, well, you can go and sell everything that you own. Another one said, I'll come and follow you. And he said, the son of man has no place to lay his head. He saw into his heart of his comforts and his idols that he just wanted to be part of Jesus' fan club, to be near the action. Jesus always had his disciples count the full cost, which Paul fully understood as he was bound to him. He found his freedom in him, but he's now bound to him for life. His life is forfeit at that point. When we say yes to Jesus, there's one call, as I preached on last week. We say yes to Jesus. We are saying yes to this king and this master who is good. We are saying yes, direct my life. Not just save it, but direct it. Lead me. Your will and your way in all things. I am bound to you forever. I lay my ear against the door frame and you pierce it through. As we come to this table this morning, Lord, pierce my heart. Pierce it again. Certainly we come to fuller awareness and revelation in our walk with him. When we say yes to him, we don't immediately know the path that that's going to take. I'm not saying that we're going to end up in a prison cell like Paul or like Martin Luther King Jr. When the Smiths ended up in Harare? Is it because when they first were called by Jesus, they had this picture of Harare? No. Nor did Paul have a picture of a Roman prison cell or Martin Luther King, the picture of a Birmingham jail. None none of that. No one runs toward persecution and poverty and pain and hardship. The world finds it for us. But they said yes to Jesus and began to walk it out. See, this is what it means. This is what it looks like to be bound by him. The heart of it, followed by the hands of it, if you will. The belief, followed by the behavior. We must get this order right. If we're trying to earn God's favor and grace by our behavior, we are still stuck in religion and legalism. Because Christ's love compels us, because we've seen what he has done for us, our life is his fully. And so have you become a bondservant of this king? Are you a prisoner of the Lord? Have you fully surrendered your life? Bowed your heart? See, posture and action is important. It doesn't mean we must come to our knees at an altar or simply a wooden stage that really represents nothing more spiritual, but posture is important. 
Why do we take a piece of bread and a cup of juice? Why, do we, why would we dunk our, have ourselves dunked under water? There are markers in our life, marking and symbolizing what has been done within us. I hope that this meal today, though we do it every Sunday, and many of you have done it hundreds of times, is not routine. It becomes real. It becomes something that marks us and sets us apart. It becomes us again, bowing heart and saying, Lord, pierce me through and send me on your mission. So first, spiritually, have you become his bondservant? I walked through four R's last week. I'm not going to do it today. But if you want to listen online, like how, do, how do I do that? What does that look like? What, what, what's the transaction that takes place? Because it's in here, it's in my heart, and God listening through my words. And maybe my posture is changed as we sing songs. I come to my knees or I raise hands or I open up my hands. Posture is important. But what's the transaction that happens spiritually? I encourage you to listen through that. And I want you to know the second part that is so critical when we say, when we say I know I'm still struggling. I still am wavering. To have, I'm trying to piece life together. It still seems purposeless at times, hopeless at times, unfulfilled. Are we on mission? So the reason that Paul never question whether God was punishing him is because he was fully on mission proclaiming the gospel in every circumstance. And I wonder if it's possible that those who struggle in that way feel like something's missing. It's very clear that you are not on mission for Jesus. You're never meant to doubt or wonder or fret. We have the ability to have the confidence in everything that we do your life circumstances might not change at all, but your attitude in them and your intentionality for them may be transformed. That you know you're doing exactly what God has called you to do. You are on mission for him. Some of us need to know this kind of freedom deeply today. Paul says in Galatians 5.1, also writing from that prison, that same prison cell, he got busy, right, in those letters, for freedom, Christ has set us free. So stand firm and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. You have been set free. And we need to know that by giving him our whole life, by surrendering our hearts fully to him. And it could be as simple as this prayer this morning. Lord, forgive my arrogance, my ignorance, and my disobedience. I bow before you, wholly surrendered, pierce my heart. As a sign of that, I receive this communion, what you have done for me. And we are sent ones. There is one call. Follow Jesus, become his bondservant, be a sent one, a proclaimer of hope, a proclaimer of truth, a proclaimer of the gospel. Jesus said in John 20, 21 to his disciples, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me into the world, I am now sending you. How did the Father send him? At great cost, with great sacrifice, coming from heaven to earth, whole different context, and it cost him his life. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. Peace be with you. Not fear, 
not doubt, not fretting, not worry, not turmoil. Peace be with you. And if you're one that says, I I do not know peace in my life, you have probably not taken up the call of being a sent one yet. Because it says, I get my peace with you as you are sent. When Jesus said in Matthew 28, I am with you always to the end of the age. You'll never be alone. You feel alone? It was in the context of you will go and make disciples. There's a reason we don't know the confidence of the nearness of the Lord, the peace, the freedom, and the hope that he has. One, we've not bowed our hearts to him, wholly, fully surrendered. And two, we have not been sent out, taken that call and commission to be sent out by him. I was reading, rereading Martin Luther King's letter from Birmingham jail this week. He said, in, in a portion of it. So the, que- the question is not whether we will be extremist, but what kind of extremist we will be. No, we're not all called to be Martin Luther King Jr. or Paul or the Smiths in Zimbabwe. We're not, we have different expressions of that call. What kind of extremist will we be? But will we be extremists for hate or extremists for love? Will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice or will we be extremists for the cause of justice? And even there he quoted from, he quoted Jesus, used Jesus as an example, Paul as an example of an extremist for the gospel. But how similar, it was striking as they, they both wrote from a prison cell, basically proclaiming a similar message, the hope of the gospel in unity, in oneness, in no segregation, in walls being broken down. The same message that Paul proclaimed 2,000 years earlier to all peoples. Come to Jesus and find your home. Martin Luther King, as a minister of the word, proclaimed the same thing and was willing to forfeit his life. But Paul and Martin Luther King Jr., they didn't picture Rome or Birmingham, a jail cell or chains, poverty, persecution, certainly not their execution. They pictured none of that when they said yes to Jesus, but they began walking it and following it out. And many of us, if I, if I said, you, you want to go move to Harare, Zimbabwe, so that you can know peace, freedom, hope, confidence, you would say you're crazy. Actually, Jeff, if you're listening, you'd probably say that's crazy. (laughs) None of us, many of us, most of us would not trade places with them. They've had no power, daytime power for a month. They're getting up, they have to get up at 3 a.m. to have the ability to wash their clothes. It's winter there. Well, it rarely gets into the 40s, it's rarely above the 60s during the day, and everything's built of in concrete and tile. It is cold. And yet they are not questioning whether God is punishing them. In fact, they know a hope, a peace, an urgency, an influence for the gospel that most of us are longing for, and yet none of us would trade places with. Is that not ironic? You count the cost. Will you end up in Harare, Zimbabwe? When I found it was the seventh least livable city in the world. So shortly after Jeff and Renee moved there, I Skyped with Jeff and said, so it could be much worse. He didn't think it was too funny. 
What would it take when we long for and want? What would, what would we be willing to give to know without a shadow of a doubt that we are doing exactly in everything what God has asked us to do? To never question when bad things happen if he's punishing us. That doesn't mean there's not sin in our life and that we shouldn't be reflective and confessing, absolutely. But no, that's not our first response. Our first response is, okay, Lord, give me strength and endurance that I continue on your mission. Rekindle that hope and joy and love. Make that message shine even brighter now because you're bringing me an opportunity to preach out of persecution, to preach out of hardship and trial. And that'll get people's attention. Oh, I, oh, sure, I can preach on the, the love of Jesus and everything in my life from your perspective looks great. Healthy and provided for, safe and secure as much as possible. But when everything has been stripped from you and you preach that same message, it has a different tone and quality to it. So that would be our response. We long for it. Are we willing to give our whole selves to it? That might be the path that that leads us to could be whole new fields and whole new places or simply whole new attitudes in the very places we've already been sent and planted in. Let me invite the team up that we might respond to this. And let me remind us of the simple, a simple practical hands exercise. If he has whole, the whole of our life, do we need to find ourselves in a prison cell? Do we need to go preaching on the street corners? Do we need to up and move our family to Africa? I'll let God answer that for you, but before we ever get moved to Zimbabwe, could we have our hearts moved to open our homes? That's the summer challenge I've given, to simply invite neighbors or coworkers, those that don't normally come to your table. doesn't mean you couldn't also invite some friends that are closer to you or family to this kind of a gathering. Maybe it's a backyard barbecue. Maybe it's a more formal dinner party. Maybe it's a early evening happy hour. Make it happy. Whatever that is, this is this, hopefully a simple challenge. Maybe it won't be easy to be stretching because there's no agenda. Well, the, the agenda is love and seeing those walls broken down that might otherwise exist amongst us, amongst Neighbors who are a little bit different than us or coworkers the same. And simply listen. Learn one another's story. And then I'm setting aside August 25th to give testimony. How to go. And the testimony may, I mean, there, there could be a lot of crickets in the room. That will be a testimony. We'll, we'll hear that testimony. Or the testimony could be, I invited all my neighbors and nobody came. Well, what did you learn from that? How did that feel? Or it may simply be, well, a few came, and here's what I was surprised at. Here's what happened in my heart, I think. Here's what God is doing, I think. I doubt the testimony is going to be, well, they all came, and the Holy Spirit descended on us with tongues of fire, and we stayed up all night singing to him and proclaiming him and prophesying and speaking in tongues, and and the sun came up the next morning. Praise God if that's what he wants to do. We're open to that, Lord. Do it again. But the simple testimony of, I'm called to be a sower. I'm called to be a seed planter. I'm called to be a missionary right where I'm planted. And that means opening hearts and tables to all peoples. The walls have been broken. That I may have opportunity to share what God is doing and has done in my life. Hope and joy and life and peace. And sometimes for, that, for most of us, the preparation is, God, 
take my heart that I might have something to share. Not only about who you are and what you've done, but what you're doing in my life. How I can live with this hope and peace and freedom and confidence in the midst of these circumstances. I need that, Lord, that I might proclaim you and honor you well. That's what this preparation is and this table is. Lord, prepare us for that moment. Prepare us for that backyard table, patio table, picnic table, dining room table. Prepare my heart for that moment that I might have opportunity to give you glory and honor. The results are in his hands. He is the God of growth and multiplication. And so let's pray to the Lord of the harvest and then respond through singing and communion and giving and praying. Lord of the harvest, multiply our efforts, multiply the seeds that we seek to sow. For those of us that are sowing already, proclaiming the hope that you have poured into our life, the joy, the love, the grace, the freedom that we have known, I pray you multiply it 30, 60, 100 fold. And for those, Lord, that have been hesitant to be proclaimers, to be missionaries, to be sent ones, as Paul proclaims, that we would find our freedom in saying yes to you wholly and fully. We surrender our hearts. We bow to you. We say take our hearts, pierce it through. And whatever it takes, Lord, I am willing. Send me. And you've promised to be with us to the end of the age. You've promised to empower us through your Holy Spirit. You've promised to mark us forever. You've promised to give us words when we need them. And we receive that. Your love compels us, Lord. Have your way and your will in and through us, our Master and King. We are wholly surrendered that we would be wholly free and forgiven. Amen.